Hello and welcome to SSCS Chip Chat. I'm your host Satya Mishra and today my guest is Dr. Shanti Pawan. Dr. Pawan is well known for his work on Delta Sigma modulators and end-path filters. He's a professor at IIT Chennai and a fellow of the IEEE. He sat down with us at ISSCC 2018 to talk about growing up in Bangalore, the Silicon Valley of India, about studying with Dr. Chipidis at Columbia University, and his efforts to grow the community of circuit practitioners in India. Also, there are some fireworks in this show. Enjoy. So, Dr. Pawan, I always like to start the podcast with a little bit of background. The first thing I look for is what got people into electronics and where they grew up. So, as I understand, you grew up in Bangalore uh, back in before India's economy was opened up in 1991. Yes, I did. Uh, uh, that was a much nicer, greener, uh, less crowded Bangalore. Uh, uh, as a kid, I used to walk uh, two miles each way to school on a busy highway, uh, which uh, you know, uh, which was. Uh, uh, nowhere as crowded as it is uh, today and it was perfectly safe to do so. Today I can't imagine walking on that street uh, at all. Uh, so uh, yeah, it was very different. My dad was uh, an electronics engineer and, uh, and that probably what got me started in, uh, in electronics. I dabbled with hobby stuff, you know, blinking lights and uh, stuff like that when I was in school. But I must say, I really got interested in uh, circuits when uh, I went to IIT Madras for uh, my undergraduate degree. We had uh, two really inspiring professors, uh, Professor Reddy and Professor Rao, who were uh, just uh, magical in the classroom. So it was just very, very difficult not to be smitten by, uh, by circuits. By the time we finished our undergraduate uh, degree, uh, we had already taken uh, uh, two courses in circuits, uh, done two labs, uh, taken a course on uh, bipolar IC design, and taken an advanced filter design class. So when I came to the U.S. for a, uh, uh, for a PhD, those classes saved me uh, so much time in building background in these uh, uh, in these areas. So uh, let's get back to the blinking lights. How did you get hold of blinking lights? Well, uh, you go to the equivalent of fries, there was, you know, uh, there was a, a street in Bangalore where you could go and buy uh, components and then there was a whole bunch of, you know, do-it-yourself books. Uh, uh, I understood nothing, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but the hope that you'd see blinking lights at the end of the, uh, the whole uh, uh, effort, uh, you know, seemed worthwhile and uh, I finally understood something about logic, pretty much nothing else, but the uh, satisfaction of uh, making you know, something uh, as simple as lights blink uh, by wiring up a whole bunch of digital logic gates and uh, stuff was uh, motivation enough to uh, kind of pursue without dropping it in the middle. Right. And those were the days without computers and uh, without the internet and without anything. And, uh, you know, these were uh, nice ways of spending time. Right. Um, so the blinking lights were like the Legos you can get today, <laughs> or Lego robotics, rather. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. After your high school, you went to IIT Madras, and which are infamously very hard to get into. What did you have to do to prepare yourself to get there? Well, uh, those days uh, um, things were not as crazy as they are today. So the usual last two years of high school preparation in physics and math and chemistry were good enough. 
I particularly, uh, that was the first time we were exposed to uh, American textbooks in physics. There were these uh, famous books by uh, Resnick and Halliday, which kind of opened up physics in a way that you would never get in school. Uh, so I still have very fond memories of learning physics from those books, and uh, yeah, and then you know uh, we got into I got in, I wanted to do electronics, so uh, I went to IIT Madras. Yeah, that uh, that sounds very familiar. So Resnick Halliday was still a good book when I was preparing for. I guess it's but probably so even now. Yeah, I enjoyed those books thoroughly. So once you got to IIT Madras, you were probably in a class of uh, people that were also had a lot of uh, talent and had put in a lot of effort to get into there. How was the experience there? I must say that uh, we were all a bunch of uh, motivated folks. We were 30 of us in a class. Everybody knew everybody. And uh, there was genuine interest in, uh, in trying to understand the material well. In those days, there was no internet. And you know access to textbooks was also kind of limited. So we used to depend a lot on what the professor was saying in the class. Okay. We'd religiously go uh, to class and you know take down notes and you know work the homeworks and uh, uh, so on, which is kind of uh, very different from what happens today because all the information is out there and you know recorded lectures are out there and so on. So uh, I find that students are not need not be as serious in the classroom as uh, we were back then. But one of the nice things about IIT Madras was that we had a very, very strong group doing both you know, basic electrical networks and analog circuits. I mean, those courses are something that kind of, I would say, made my career, and uh, I owe a lot to them. The circuits courses especially uh, were taught by these two stalwarts, uh, Professors Reddy and Rao. Analog circuits, uh, at that time, the textbooks were notoriously bad. I mean, uh, you would open a textbook and... Uh, you would have circuit after circuit, you know, recipe after recipe. It was like uh, it was like learning a language by opening a dictionary. So you know, there was this circuit, the common base amplifier. You didn't know where it came from. Well, you know, it had this input impedance, this output impedance. You know, anybody who was even remotely curious would basically say, why the hell did this happen? Where did this come from in the first place? And then we had these two professors who basically built the whole thing from scratch and explained how circuits you know, came about, I mean, the circuits came alive on the blackboard. They were developed. They were not put down and explained. So that helped me a lot and a lot of, you know, a lot of classmates too. It was almost mesmerizing to see, you know, circuit after circuit just come up on the board from, you know, from scratch. I still remember you know, the way an op-amp was developed from, uh, from nothing, you know, from... Uh, so you would start from nothing and then, you know, at the end of two classes, you would see a two-stage op-amp with Miller compensation and uh, that sort of thing. So uh, those classes left a deep impression on, uh, on me, both uh, uh, the way we were trained to think uh, and also the way we teach. So for a general audience, I just want to make sure that we explain a little bit what an op-amp is so they can okay. appreciate it a bit. Uh, so uh, an op-amp uh, is, is basically uh, the building block of, I would say, or the workhorse of analog electronics. Um, uh, just like how a brick is a building block of a building, I mean, uh, uh, an op-amp uh, is like that to analog electronics. So one might as well say if you can build an ideal op-amp, I mean, you know, you pretty much conquered the world. I mean, uh, so the, that's uh, how important an op-amp is in uh, analog electronics. I agree uh, with that analogy to building. Is you, you need a solid op-amp to be able to make any kind of uh, signal processing circuit. Exactly, yeah. 
it has to be stable. It doesn't go into uh, random territories and yeah. oscillation or clamping or something Absolutely, like that. Absolutely, yeah. So was it all all studies at uh, IIT Madras? No, there was a lot of fun too. I mean, uh, you were in college, you were the first time you were out of home, uh, you hang out with friends, create uh, mischief, you know. Uh, <laughs> I remember uh, uh, one incident, I mean, Diwali is the Indian festival of lights and, uh, you know, we had uh, doms in the, uh, on the campus and they used to always be uh, uh, rocket fights between different doms. Rocket fights? How so big were these rockets? These rockets were not, I mean, uh, uh, were maybe about a foot long, but they would go maybe 300 feet, 400 feet without any problem. So there would be like camps of people sitting yeah, on both be, sides? Yeah, yeah. there would be <laughs> camps of people sitting on both sides and, you know, uh, you, uh, you hope that, you know, you aim right and uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, one of those rockets went into the laundry room of the dom and, you know, kind oh. of burnt the whole place down, so uh, uh, soon after... Uh, uh, Did somebody get caught? <laughs> <laughs> so soon after the uh, fireworks and lighting of fireworks in the hostels was banned, so uh, uh, we were one of the last few uh, sets of students who <laughs> <laughs> had that experience. Uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it was fun and, and learning uh, at the same time, and uh, uh, yeah, I really owe a lot uh, to my uh, alma mater for... Uh, preparing us the way they did. Yeah, it, I, I would honestly say that it probably, uh, you know, shaved off maybe at least a year and a half or two of graduate school because our preparation when we get, went into grad school was, especially in the analog area, was uh, was very, very solid. Uh, our courses were actually a, quite a breeze in, uh, in graduate school. Speaking of graduate school, so you, you went directly after your undergrad to graduate school in the U.S., right? Yes. So. At that time, I was not. Uh, there were very few schools. I was interested in circuits, but there were very, very few schools in the U.S. doing circuits. Okay. In the early '80s, people decided that the the world was going digital, and and analog was was out of the door. But you were set on analog. Yeah, you were, you right. we liked. Uh, we I liked analog, but there were very few schools to apply to. This uh, was the time when Intel was coming out with their uh, processors? Or yes, yes, or? already, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah, very much, yeah. And TIDSPs and uh, Intel processors and stuff like that. In the 80s, I mean, uh, a lot of U.S. schools shut down their analog programs and there were very, very few schools where you could go and learn analog from the real masters, right? So uh, there was Berkeley, there was UCLA, there was uh, a few of them, but Device physics, on the other hand, was there in, in uh, you know, uh, every uh, university or many more universities, materials and devices. At that time, I wasn't sure whether, you know, I really wanted to do circuits or uh, devices. So I decided to go to Princeton and uh, try and understand uh, electronic materials and devices. So the nice thing about Princeton was the first two weeks you landed up at the university that they would put you in a, uh, in a wet lab and... Uh, make you fabricate your own MOSFET. And uh, after two weeks of hard work, waking up at, you know, weird hours in the night, uh, going to the lab, you know, uh, you know, baking your silicon wafers and, and the photo photolithography and etching and all this fun stuff, I finally had my uh, real, my own MOSFET. Okay. And of course, the proof of the pudding was that you measured your MOSFET. There was a, you know, uh, there was a, a test setup where you would sweep the gate source voltage of the MOSFET and measure its drain current and plot the IV characteristic. So the machine would sweep VGS from 0 to say 15 volts and then measure the uh, drain current and would also sweep the VGS back from 15 volts to 0 
And if you had done a great job of your fabrication, then the drain current curves would, on the way, way forward and the way backward, uh, should ideally be the same. Now, when I made my MOSFET to my uh, absolute dejection, uh, I found that uh, there was a hysteresis loop with, uh, uh, which was 10 volts wide. The, the threshold in the forward direction and the threshold in the reverse direction was, uh, the difference between the two was, uh, you know, about 10 volts, indicating that, uh, you know, uh, the whole process uh, of making the MOSFET, uh, you know, I apparently messed up. So after two weeks of hard work, if this is what I was going to get, uh, you know, that kind of uh, <laughs> put me off. And, you know, I decided that, you know, I would, uh, uh, this stuff, uh, uh, I'm not cut out for this, uh, this sort of thing. Yeah, for a general audience, I want to explain what a MOSFET gate drain and source is. So a MOSFET has a, like a control terminal, which is called a gate, and then there's a drain and source where it controls the current between the drain and source. So ideally, if you're sweeping the gate voltage, which is a control, and you go one direction and then go the other direction, ideally the characteristic of the drain source current should be the same. But in your case, if you went up, there was some some kind of control and going back down it was another control which is completely different completely different so you can't use, use it, it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so soon after uh, uh, I, I, I went to uh, Columbia University which was uh, close by and uh, um, my PhD advisor uh, professor uh, Yanis Savidis uh, had just returned back from Greece after a five-year stint there. I was glad to be accepted into his research group and... Uh, so how long were you in Princeton? I was there for about three months. Three months, three okay. Or four months, yeah. And uh, uh, once I went into Columbia, I was, you know, uh, it was circuits and uh, the research group was focusing on analog signal processing in general and... Uh, so you were able to switch in the middle of a session? The first sem semester uh, I finished, so I got my uh, master's and PhD uh, while uh, I was at uh, Columbia. And soon after my master, and that again, uh, this was the mid, uh, the late 90s. Right. So 1997 or so, and that's when there was a big interest, a resurgence of interest in analog because of the wireless revolution. Right. And people were looking for analog designers everywhere. Okay. At that time, after my master's, uh, uh, where during that time, I'd interned at Texas Instruments, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, they said, you know, why don't you come over and uh, continue your PhD while working uh, at uh, TI. I took up the offer, and so I was working at TI and continued my PhD at uh, uh, Columbia. Oh, wow. Uh, and it was uh, an amazing experience because, uh, you know, I, I not only had ex access to experts at the university, right. I could just walk across my cube and talk to people who had done circuit design uh, for 20 years. Yeah. My uh, mentor was uh, Dr. Krishna Swami Nagaraj, who was a phenomenal circuit designer. It was, uh, and we were, we were in a small design group, so uh, access to him was, uh, you know, he was just in the uh, neighboring cube. Right. So I picked up a lot of circuits from Nagaraj. In 1999, I finished my PhD. Right. And uh, by 2000, there was uh, there was a big boom again, and uh, now this time the optical revolution had begun because of the uh, internet boom. So I decided to uh, uh, try my hand at a startup doing these multi-gigabit serial links. Um, so this was in California, and uh, uh, I went there, and we were all 
CMOS circuit designers who were working at you know 100 megahertz and 200 megahertz, and all of a sudden you know we were designing uh, uh, gigabit links. It was a great learning experience, right? From design to measurements to systems level stuff, and I really learned a lot at this company, uh, Big Bear Networks. And my plan was always to go back to India uh, three years after my PhD. Let's back up a little bit, and uh, I want to know. How was the experience in working in uh, Dr. Sivis's lab? Uh, Dr. Sivis, of course, if I'm not even pronouncing his name right, is quite well known in circuit space. So you you were um, part of a group of students. Yes, uh, we had a group of maybe about four or five students okay. uh, in the uh, in the lab, and at at that time at Columbia there were uh, three professors, and all their students shared resources, so we had the same lab. So we learn a lot from each other and also from the group meetings, and it was a great experience. And uh, Professor Zividis uh, took a lot of pains to get his graduate students to not only do good research, but also communicate their results in a very clear fashion. And that was something that I owe completely to, uh, to Professor Zividis. You could see his, the way he gave his talks and the way he made, made his slides and so on. And uh, our paper drafts were, uh, he used to take the pains to go through several iterations uh, uh, in spite of you know, being so busy. And I think that shaped the way we write now, not just me, but a whole bunch of my colleagues uh, who uh, graduated along with him, uh, benefited tremendously from his, uh, his way of communicating uh, research. And uh, I wish I could spend as much time with my students uh, uh, as he did with me. He was just amazing that way. So what is a typical number of iterations you would go through? Oh, well, this is embarrassingly, uh, uh, this is embarrassing, but yeah, I think my first journal paper, we'd su I'd submit a draft and then it would come back. And those days, uh, you know, you couldn't comment on uh, on a computer program, I guess. So, so you'd print it out and submit it to professor and then uh, it came back all with red ink. <laughs> it was covered in red. And then, you know, I was, uh, oh, you know, uh, appalled that my quality of writing was so bad. But then, you know, everything that he said made sense. And uh, one thing that uh, he used to always keep saying was that you need to put yourself in the shoes of a reader who doesn't know you and who doesn't know the subject uh, as well as you do. That was uh, something that you know I still uh, remember uh, to this day. And uh, the first journal paper I remember we went on and on for maybe at least like four or five months, right. iteration after iteration after iteration after iteration. Uh, you know, each one with lesser red than the previous version. So eventually we converged, and uh, later journal papers were uh, were easier to write. And by the time I wrote my thesis, uh, I was uh, happy when. He actually said that the thesis was well written so with uh, very little red, red in the... Uh, <laughs> That's ideal. <laughs> in the draft. So, yeah, I mean, uh, he spent enormous amounts of time and effort uh, cleaning up uh, drafts of, uh, paper drafts of his grad students. Uh, I really owe him big time for all that effort and uh, stuff, yeah. And we used to have these group meetings where uh, he would also come up with nice circuit puzzles that you know, kind of be fun to solve. Yeah, it was a great experience. I enjoyed my uh, time at Columbia. So you were, um, after that, you were doing your PhD as well as working at TI yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. for three years or something like that. Yeah, for three years, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then TI, I should make clear that, uh, also known as Texas Instruments and its full name, uh, used to be one of the biggest semiconductor companies back then. Yes, I think uh, 
they probably are still they're, they're large. They're still, still large, but there are, at least in terms of revenue and uh, chips yeah, shipped, yeah, there are yeah. bigger companies now. TI was a great place too. I mean, I really liked uh, you know the industrial environment because mm -hmm. uh, of the rigor and uh, attention to detail that uh, you had to pay to make uh, a chip work in practice. Uh, as I said, I already ha also had access to experts, uh, you know, who'd done uh, stuff for a long time and we could bounce ideas off and so on. So it worked out very well for me, academia and industry at the same time. Uh, That's unusual too. Mostly people either do a PhD or work. How did you manage the time between the two? Well, uh, one nice thing was that a uh, problem I was solving uh, for my PhD was also of interest to TI. So uh, there was some overlap in the, uh, in the work. So I was working on high frequency filters, which was of interest at that time to TI. But at work, uh, I also worked on high speed ADCs, which uh, kind of uh, also uh, helped me later on in my career because I was exposed to uh, designing these animals. Yeah. So filters are things that, that you select a yeah, particular I, signal instead of yeah, so you basically have a signal with uh, a, a desired signal and a lot of garbage and a filter basically uh, equivalently removes the trash and lets uh, right. the real stuff through. And ADCs are analog to digital converters. Yes. So in, in electronics, we have analog signals which are continuous and digital, which is what we can program with, so you need to convert between them. Yes. And that's where ADCs come in. So Absolutely. those are very important parts of any kind of electronic circuit. Fantastic. So, so after TI, you, you caught the startup mania and went to the West Coast. How was that change? Oh, it was, uh, uh, it was, uh, I liked the weather and uh, <laughs> uh, uh, it was great, yeah. So I, the founders of the company were friends of mine from grad school, so uh, it was a lot of fun. We learned a lot of stuff, uh, uh, you know, together, made mistakes together uh, and so on. So 2002, I had decided to go back anyway, so... Um, I left. I love teaching, so I went back to India to my uh, alma mater and started uh, teaching and uh, conducting research uh, at IIT Madras. Yeah. So how's the experience being a student versus a teacher? Well, <laughs> you know that you have seen both sides. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, I guess it's difficult to compare the two, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I enjoyed being a student. I enjoy being a teacher. The character of the uh, school, which was mostly a teaching institute in the 90s, uh, has changed and now uh, we are also very serious about research. But unlike U.S. schools where there's a lot of pressure to bring in money and, uh, um, you know, otherwise you can't run your research program, the pressure in an Indian academic institute is uh, much lesser. So uh, I like that and uh, allows me to explore topics that, you know, I would probably not be at a liberty to do uh, and fail uh, uh, in a U.S. school, right? For the first few years, I was busy setting up, you know, uh, uh, the lab and teaching the courses and so on. And then uh, I started working on this family of analog to digital converters called Delta Sigma Data Converters. I had no clue what they were when I started out. And uh, I've been working on them for like uh, 12 to 13 years now. Right, so um, let's talk a little bit about Delta Sigma. That sounds very technical. What what is delta sigma converter? How can a person who is not an electronics engineer understand it? Okay, well, uh, uh, you know, I can give you an analogy. Let's say you go to a coffee shop. You know, coffee costs, uh, I don't know, maybe uh, $3 and two cents, but you only have a $5 bill. Well, uh, if you're going to buy, uh, the, and if you didn't have a credit card with you, uh, there was no way 
uh, you can buy this uh, unless you have three $1 bills and two one cent uh, coins. Now let's say you visit the same coffee shop over and over again every day, right, as a part of your routine. And if the shop assistant knows you, then you make a deal with the shop assistant and uh, say, if on a particular day, if I owe you more than $2.50, I'm going to pay you a $5 note and you don't return anything back to me. If I owe less than $2.50, I pay nothing and uh, uh, you know walk away with my coffee. And uh, so if you kind of work through the math, so basically let's say the first day you get a coffee, you owe $3.02, you pay the shop assistant $5 and you overpaid by $1.98. The second day you buy uh, the same coffee, you overpaid the previous day, you've got coffee uh, for $3.02, uh, so you owe on something which is less than $2.50, so you pay nothing. Right? So if you keep doing this uh, you know, over and over again, uh, you will find that eventually, after a large number of days, you exactly paid the shop, on average, uh, $3.02 per cup of coffee, which almost sounds unbelievable that you can, you can do that by just using uh, $5 bills. Delta Sigma is, is basically something, a Delta Sigma A to D converter is, uh, is something that does, implements this, with electrical signals. It uses two coarse levels to resolve a signal to a much finer resolution by just using very coarse levels which translate to uh, very crude analog components. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of digital complexity because you need to average uh, the sequence of uh, uh, coarse levels to get at the uh, input signal. And as we speak, the applications of Delta Sigma data converters have exploded and we're probably carrying like 20 of them in our phones uh, right now. Every sensor interface uses Delta Sigma techniques. Wireless receivers have many Delta Sigma converters in them. A minimum of 20 is what you're probably carrying in your pocket uh, right now. Wow, that's, that's an impressive number. I had no idea that there were 20 of them in it. So I had expected more of the other kind of analog to digital converters. So uh, is that your main work these days? Yes. I've been working with uh, Delta Sigma converters for 12 to 13 years now. I'm also interested in uh, networks in general. I mean, electrical networks, uh, time varying and time invariant stuff, circuit theory basically. And particularly these days, uh, NPath filters have made a resurgence. NPath filters were this family of filters that were explored in the 60s and, uh, and then abandoned for some reason. They've made a comeback recently, uh, the last 10 years or so. Yes, yeah, so NPath filters take um, signals and apply different delays to them. Yes, so there's, I mean, they're basically, well, the holy grail of you know, RF engineering has been to build, try to build a narrowband, tunable, low noise, low distortion bandpass filter because you're trying to select a single channel you know, from a whole lot of garbage in the RF environment. Right. Now, traditionally, if you had to do it with time invariant circuits, which are the more familiar kinds of circuits, you'd have to use resonators, which were very, very selective, and they had to be tunable. Right. Uh, and uh, um, so it turned out, it turns out that making something which is tunable yeah. and linear and low loss Right. Uh, you know, is fundamentally very, very, very difficult. Yeah, so, so resonator is like a piano key. Exactly. And 
making it resonate at different frequencies, frequencies. is it's extremely hard. Yeah. So basically, you'd have to have a whole bunch of piano keys, right? And then, you know, uh, it'd become so big and bulky that you wouldn't be able to do it. Right. So N-path filtering is a, a very intriguing way of, of moving away from time invariant circuits uh, and uses uh, time varying circuit principles that basically switches and capacitors dispenses with inductors altogether and uh, where the response of these filters is controlled by a clock frequency which can be very very precise and a bandwidth which is controlled by capacitors and resistors uh, so and we should say that inductors are kind of hard to make on integrated exactly. circuits so that's why people want to avoid inductors them inductors are hard to make and even harder to tune yes so and they're big and expensive yeah. you you want to do capacitors and resistors which are much easy much more easily integrated and used sure. as the much as sure. much as possible sure so uh, n path filters uh, you know uh, are very very uh, can be very very linear and tunable and uh, you know have made a big splash in the rf area over the last uh, maybe 10 years or so and i find that them uh, very intriguing you know it's one of my uh, i would say hobbies uh, try and understand them and uh, explain them well to my students excellent that that sounds like an interesting area of research we'll look forward to more work from you on that what do you think has been a highlight of your career one of the uh, things that uh, i'm happy about is after i went back to india I was very fortunate to have a colleague of mine from Colombia. Uh, we we were in grad school together, uh, Nagendra Krishnapura, to join uh, back as a faculty member at at IIT. So three years after I went there, he came back. Then things started taking off. Uh, we were two of us, so managing the lab, you know, uh, uh, teaching courses. Uh, all of a sudden, was now much easier than uh, just one person alone. And uh, slowly, we built uh, a group over the last uh, you know 15 years. So we now have five faculty in analog and about uh, 50 or so graduate students among the uh, five faculty in all areas of analog, you know, uh, data converters um, and mixed signal, uh, RF, uh, uh, phase lock loops, power management, uh, and so on. Earlier in Indian academia, it was uh, there was never this concept of making a chip and fabricating it, and you know, publishing in the top conferences and journals of the uh, of the area, like the Journal of Solid State Circuits and or Transactions on Circuits and Systems or ISSCC or the the big conferences. What I'm happy about is our group is now regularly publishing at these venues. Students make chips routinely. This was unheard of like 15 years ago. And uh, we make chips which, you know, compete with the best in the world and publish in the same venues. So uh, we're very happy about that. And I think, uh, you know, overall, I think that's something that when looking back has given me a lot of satisfaction that, uh, you know, I helped make this happen. What challenges have you faced? The, uh, the biggest challenge uh, I've faced as an academic is the very limited access to good graduate students. Uh, I think it's a problem not just in... Uh, my university, but across uh, academia in India. The, thanks to liberalization, one of the nice things is that there are many good jobs available, which pay a lot more than what a student could earn if he was a graduate student. For a lot of uh, smart kids, uh, the uh, motivation to go to graduate school right. in India is actually very little. I find that access to good graduate students, if there was one thing that I could wish for, I would wish uh, that we had a good supply of, uh, we do still get uh, a few good students, uh, but the uh, incoming stream is actually very, very small, particularly so for chip design, you know, where things take a long time. And, you know, you could be spending a year and a half on designing a high-performance ADC, and then uh, if you weren't careful about it, 
it won't work and uh, and the difficulty uh, with this process i think has uh, is some, is a, is a challenge that we face uh, that uh, you know foreign academics uh, do not on the other hand getting funding is actually in india um, funding for uh, chip fab and uh, student salaries is easy hmm. unfortunately we're not able to find uh, uh, a lot of good students so yeah um, i think part of the issue is to a lot of students used to go to us people who are actually motivated to do graduate studies and may not even consider yeah i agree yeah i think that's still uh, that's valid even today okay there's a big fraction i mean the a big fraction of uh, students motivated for higher studies go to the us or europe or right. uh, and then the uh, whole bunch of others are attracted to the financial sector right. which also pays very well right and then you know people find jobs uh, you know uh, in india itself right. which also pay very well right so uh, the motivation to go to graduate school uh, is actually uh, uh, very little i mean it's not just in uh, in madras but throughout india i think this is a right. uh, this is a problem but i think it's somewhat misguided though because in the long term i think the graduate school helps out in your career oh absolutely I, i think there's no doubt that uh, you know long term benefits uh, of going to graduate school are uh, the significant long term benefits but i think the whole story of human endeavor is you know always put short term benefits over long term right and uh, you know i think this is no different and uh, people don't see the the benefit of investing in their careers and uh, what can we do to make graduate studies a little more attractive to well one thing would be to to uh, increase graduate student salaries <laughs> okay. right uh, but you know uh, uh, the government is uh, sensitive to this but you know they're always lagging behind and we also have various ways in which you know we kind of link up with foreign universities so that people uh, pursuing graduate study in india don't feel at a disadvantage because they've never been to a foreign campus and so on once you go out and see that what you do there is pretty much the same as what you do at home over the last maybe 10 years the government has also realized this and now funds uh, graduate students in india to travel to conferences abroad mm-hmm. which was something that they never did before yeah, that is important because getting to conferences is good to launch your career and if you don't get funded that's that's yeah, kind of tough absolutely and then you know it also tells you what you know the standard that's out there and you know uh, what you need to do to be able to get into these conferences yeah excellent so you mentioned that you can get funding for chip fabrication in india now yes too? yes yes Oh, that's that's fantastic so uh, the government uh, both through government and industry we've gotten funding to fabricate chips so how many chips are you able to do well uh, depending on the number of students who are there i mean you know we almost routinely you know fab uh, maybe four or five chips a year well that's that's uh, a pretty impressive number among uh, we have five faculty so yeah. uh, all sorts of stuff you know rf we also have a innovative masters program in conjunction with uh, in a, as a collaborative effort with texas instruments in bangalore mm-hmm. students do their coursework at iit madras and then uh, you know we kind of come up with a problem statement and they go off to ti and then uh, uh, work on uh, real stuff right and that's been a very successful program that we've been running for the last 8 years or so yeah that sounds like a great program what advice would you give your younger self if there is any i don't think i would have done anything differently i it would just be to follow your passion and uh, looking back i don't really regret uh, anything that i did uh, uh, right. so far so you followed a passion and stuck with circuits yeah. when digital was actually cool yeah exactly i mean uh, you know i uh, looking back i was passionate about analog there was really nothing in analog at that time right, right? that didn't really affect me at all so 
it just turned out that I got lucky and then analog also became, uh, you know, hot and happening and uh, I'd just say, you know, follow your passion and uh, you'd be okay. So, between all this work, do you ever get time to have fun? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, academia, I mean, I never, actually I don't feel like I'm working at all because, <laughs> you know, uh, I, I love this stuff. Mm -hmm. I like to teach, uh, I like research, I like traveling to conferences and talking to, uh, you know, colleagues. So I really never feel uh, that I'm getting, working myself uh, too much or okay. uh, getting stressed out. And of course, uh, you know, the usual family time outside of, uh, within court's work, you know, keeps me uh, going. And uh, yeah, uh, I love living on campus and uh, we have a great campus in IIT Madras. Yeah, I really like uh, what I'm doing. All right, Dr. Pawan, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you, Satya, very much. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Did you like this podcast? Please leave us a review on iTunes so others can find out about it. Did you not like something? Please drop me an email. Also, if you'd like someone to be on the show, or if you have anything to say at all, send me an email. My email address is chipchat at fastmail.com. Again, it's chipchat at fastmail.com. This podcast is sponsored by IEEE Solid State Circuit Society. Please check out sscs.ieee.org to become a member.